I'm Jeff Cohen. Before we introduce our next guest, I just want to share with you that today's show marks our 100th episode. Thank you to all of our listeners for supporting the show and sending along your ideas for future guests. And of course, a big shout out to our producer, Gary Wallach, and to the OU, which graciously sponsors this podcast. Now on to today's guest. Linda Kinsberg recalls strong feelings about religion as early as kindergarten. Many years later, she's proud to have many grandkids following the path that she blazed toward Jewish observance. But how did she get from secular to observant and positively influence future generations? We're about to find out. Linda, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you. I'm proud to be here. So I don't think I ever interviewed a guest who could point to kindergarten as a moment where religion first entered the arena of things they were thinking about. So I'm really excited to get to that part. But before we even get to what happened at ages five and six, let's just give our listeners a sense of where your story begins, where you were born and raised. I was uh, born in the Lower East Side of Manhattan on Eldridge Street, actually at Beth Israel Hospital, but I lived on Eldridge Street uh, between Delancey and Broome. And that's where my most cherished memories are of my childhood. And my grandmother lived down the block from us, and she was a big influence on me. Okay, so we have a sense of where your story begins. What was going on religiously within your family at, at a young age? How would you characterize where your family stood on the Jewish spectrum? My mother and father were not religious. Good people, but not religious. My grandmother was religious. However, as time went on, and she was away from her home in Greece, Things changed here in America. I guess maybe the melting pot theory came in where everyone tried to be more American. But she was always spiritual. She would always talk about Hashem. She would say, Baruch Haba, blessed be Father. And she would look up and she would just pray with her eyes way up in the sky and her hands open, asking Hashem whatever she was asking. She was not literate. She grew up in Yanina, Greece, and there were no uh, school for women. I think the boys went to Cheder. I'm not sure about their secular education. So when she came here, she couldn't read a sitter, but she talked to Hashem day in and day out. And I saw that from the very beginning. And I believe that's what pushed me. And you mentioned she was living down the block. Was there a shul in the area or something that maybe she would be the one taking you to? Yes, there was a Greek shul on, it was on Broom Street between Allen and Eldridge. It was just a fascinating place to be because they were very physical when they prayed. The women would hold their hands out, talk up to Hashem. It wasn't just reading from a book. And so as a kid, I, I would see this and see how involved you got with God. And maybe then I just ran off and played, but I always knew God was there. And I always called on to him whenever I needed him, even as a young child. One of my favorite sayings I noticed was to think that I'm thinking. Here I was a little kid looking in the mirror and just amazed that I had a brain, that God gave me something that I could think about. And I used to tell that to all my baby cousins. They used to get sick of hearing it. But I said, no, really, you have a brain. God gave us a brain. And even though I wasn't, you know, formally religious, I just believed that all the time. Now, you said it was a Greek shul, meaning that all the congregants were from Greece? Or what, what is it that gave it that Greek flavor? And also, what level of Judaism was this shul? The people there, originally, in the, I think it was in the 1920s when they opened, were from Greece, from Yanina. There was a Spanish shul around the corner that was more the, the Sephardic uh, from Spain people. 
but they closed down because as the years went on, people moved away from the Lower East Side, and then they joined with the Kahila Kadosha Yanina, which was on Boom Street. It's still standing there today, and it's now a museum and a shul. So it, it has a lot of heritage and a lot of meaning for all of us. And what level of Judaism were they? At the time, to me, they seemed to be orthodox. There is a women's section, it's a separation. And I think the further back you go, the more orthodox it was. Now they have a lot of people traveling to come there on Shabbos. So unless they're, you live in the neighborhood, and the neighborhood's now up and coming again to be a better neighborhood, where Jews might be attracted to, but I'm not too sure how many people still live on the Lower East Side. Because, you know, I don't travel on Shabbat and I don't go there. Now, I mentioned kindergarten in the introduction, so give our listeners a sense of what kind of school you were going to in those early years and what was happening in kindergarten. You actually have a memory of something from a religious standpoint that was going on in your mind. I went to PS42 in Manhattan, the same school my mother and all my aunts and uncles went to. And it was a good school. I had a good education there, secularly, of course. In those days, back in the 1950s, prayer was allowed in public school. However, it was influenced by the Christian doctrine. Most of the teachers that I had were Irish, Catholic, and we had to say thank you before we had a snack. So there was a simple prayer, something like, uh, God is great, God is good. Thank you, God, for the birds that sing. Thank you, God, for everything. And something about the food before we eat. So the words were nothing bad for us as Jews, but they made us fold our hands. I knew that Christians fold their hands when they, or non-Jews, I didn't know about too many other religions other than Christianity at that time. So I couldn't understand when I go to shul with my grandmother, nobody folds their hands like that. So I didn't want to, I wanted to open my hands and my kindergarten teacher came over to me and folded my hands for me. I was very upset because I'm Jewish and none of the other Jewish children didn't want to fold their hands. They were happy to be just like everyone else. But I didn't want to do it. So I told my mom about it. And she came up the next day and told my teacher, you know, even though my mother wasn't religious, she just felt that she didn't want me to act like a Christian. So she told the teacher that the words are okay, but that our tradition is to keep our hands open when we pray. And the teacher said, fine, I didn't know. Thank you for telling me. So the next day, I was so proud. I just kept my hands open like this when I prayed, and none of the other kids did, but I, I felt very proud of myself. And I, I, I kept saying, God, you see this? See what I'm doing? Now, is that the only instance in those early years of, of feeling this sort of tension between stuff Jews would do and non-Jews, or were there other examples of this as you continued through school? In second grade, I had an Irish Catholic teacher, Miss Crane. She was wonderful. But she was you know, geared towards Christianity. And comes Christmas, here we are, write sentences about Christmas, five sentences about Christmas, day in and day out in December. Now, I knew a little bit about Christmas because my neighbor upstairs was Christian and she always invited us to see her Christmas tree, but I did not know anything enough to write sentences about it. So I said, I'm gonna write about Hanukkah, and I did. So when the teacher called me up to her desk and she saw my notebook, she goes, what is this? I go, well, I don't know too much about Christian because I'm Jewish, so I couldn't write about Christmas. So, but look, I could write about Hanukkah because that's my holiday. So she goes, oh, thank you for telling me. <laughs> and she says, okay, and then she accepted my sentences. 
And as time went on in public school, Christmas was always celebrated. When I became a teacher, it was Christmas again. And I would introduce little things about Judaism to my non-Jewish kids, just as they could understand my heritage a little bit since I'm learning about theirs. Well, it sounds like your teacher was pretty understanding and accepted that you'd write about Hanukkah as someone who's Jewish. Were the other kids in the class as accepting of you going down a different path from what everybody else was doing? At that age, I don't remember too much um, in the classroom of any prejudice against me. Outside the classroom, I did witness it, though. How so? I was in um, the Allen Street Park with my grandmother one day, drinking uh, some water at the water fountain. In those days, no one worried too much about germs. And all of a sudden, a friend of mine, who I thought was a friend, uh, who was, I think, Yugoslavian or Albanian, and she came over with a bunch of other kids and said, we can't play with you anymore because you're, you killed God. You're a murderer. Whoa. I had no idea what they were saying. I was about eight years old. I said, how can you kill God? I said, God can't be killed. God made us all. And they looked at me like I was crazy. You killed God. And they, we got up playing with it and they walked away. I was hysterical. How could I be a murderer? And in those days, if you tell me I did something wrong, I believed you. And I, I cried. I ran over to my grandmother. And she took out from her pocketbook that was embroidered with stitches of a beautiful flower. She takes out a nice handkerchief that smelled so delicious with the perfume she had in her pocketbook. And she wiped my face. And she said, what happened with those kids with her accent? And I said, I told her what happened. And she says, ah, they don't know what they're talking about. Don't listen to them. They're crazy. And as we walked home, we passed by the shul. And she says, you'll come with me to shul on Shabbat? And you'll see God loves you, and you didn't murder him. He's there and doing very well. And I did go with her to school, and I watched the women pray and, 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 and realized that, yeah, we're still connected. He's still there. He's not gone. And if you want to see a story that I wrote, it's on com, and it's a story called Nona Did I Kill God, and it tells the story about what happened to me in the park Sounds like you had some family who knew all the right words to say to you at a young age to really uh, make you feel better about some of these tricky situations you were in. Yeah, I, I was happy. You know, when I look back, I say, you know, even though I always said we weren't in a religious home, my grandmother was so spiritual that for me that came before the actual traditions. And so as we continue the story and go into the middle school and high school years, did all that happen in the Lower East Side? Was your, was your family out throughout your childhood or you moved around? Well, at 11 and a half years old, we moved to Borough Park. When I look back at the Hashgacha Prati of my life, I realized that was a very good move. Even though we weren't religious and didn't quite fit into the religious people of Borough Park, there were a lot of secular Jews, and I went, still went to public school. My uh, finishing up of sixth grade, in those days we went to sixth grade before junior high, I did not have many Jewish friends. Most of them were Catholic, Italian. But once I got on to junior high school, there were many Jews that were in uh, Persian junior high school, which was also a secular school. So we hung out together, but we didn't, it wasn't really a religious hanging out, but we would belong to the Y, and the Y had some social things going on, and, and I learned about Judaism through them. You know, they might have a Shabbaton or 
they would go through the Kiddush, little things like that. And But most of the people there were Jewish, and we had Jewish uh, activities. Then there was something called B'nai B'rith, which was a conservative organization, but wonderful. And we would go once a week uh, to a meeting of just girls, and it was run by a woman who would oversee what we were doing. And she gave me the job of being Jewish Heritage Chairman, which I thought was really funny. Me? What do I know? She says, you'll find out, you'll find out. And I ended up having to do a Sukkot presentation, so I went to the library and did some research. I remember going to a Sukkot once or twice with my grandmother on the Lower East Side, and I made a little Sukkot in the classroom at this Talmud Torah school, using crepe paper as a skach and a little table with fruit, and I decorated it. And we danced Havana Gila, and I told the story of Sukkot that I got from the library. And everyone loved it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, little old me. Hashem sent me these little jobs on the way, you know, so that I would get involved. And I started getting my feet wet into all of this. Now that you've moved to Borough Park and getting exposed to more and more Jewish things, when does the thought enter your mind that you personally could take on more religiously? Are you starting to understand that there's this world of Orthodox Judaism and are you starting to gravitate towards it at that point or does that come later? Now, I think in about when I was 15, I wrote in my diary, I've been keeping diaries since I'm 14, that I wish I was more religious. Now, I would never would have remembered that if I didn't reread all my diaries about two years ago. And, you know, at 70, you look at things a lot differently than you do at 15. And I saw that I wanted to be more religious. And then I, I looked around and I said, maybe Judaism is not for me. But then I said, that's crazy. God knows what he's doing. Why did he make me Jewish if he didn't want me to be Jewish? If he wanted me to be another religion, that's how I would have been born. So I followed what was Judaism. And then I said, if I want to reject it, God forbid, but in those days I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, I have to know what I'm rejecting. I can't just say I don't want it if I don't know what I'm giving up. So I felt it was like an inheritance someone gave me. So I, I pursued it, and I learned it was a slow learning, very slow. But each step that I took, I felt like I was getting closer, and that's how I did it. I learned about being Jewish. And I met my first husband in public high school, but he was Shoma Shabbat, and I learned a lot of things from him and his family at that point once I got into high school, Neuchuk High School in Brooklyn. I'm just thinking back to this diary entry, you're 15 and you're saying you want to become more religious, but that can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. But it sounds like it made you want to explore at least and understand Judaism better. Like, How did you go about starting to understand what it would mean to eat kosher, keep Shabbos? Like, How did you learn those things when you were in a public school setting? It was a difficult learning that took me, especially regarding food in Kashrut, took me well into my adult years to be fully 100% kosher. It was very difficult because eating is a very social activity. You do it with your family, you do it with friends, you celebrate with it. And in the, in the Greek community, the Greek Jewish community, even at funerals or unveilings, you eat afterwards. It's a big thing about eating, not just the family that's sitting shiva, but you always have things on the table so people could eat when family comes or friends come. So by me not eating at people's houses and saying to them, I'm sorry, but your dishes are not good for me, or I can't eat your food anymore, 
I'm changing. They're not. But I didn't realize that at that point. I just felt, why can't you accept I'm doing something good. Why can't you accept it? People were so defensive, offensive, upset. I don't know if they felt inadequate or if they felt I was criticizing them. But it, it just was like I was a salmon swimming upstream. They just couldn't accept it. That I got accused of being a hypocrite because I'm not doing everything. And I said, but you got the same laws I got at Mount Sinai. You choose to do nothing, but I'm trying to do some, so I'm a hypocrite. You know, like they just couldn't <laughs> understand it. I got questions like, I eat ham. I didn't die. Look at me. I'm okay. And I just got questions like that, and it was very hard. And I didn't have my feet wet yet in the Jewish community where I had a social network there of people accepting me. My brother was sent to Talmud Torah because he was going to have a bar mitzvah. My mother felt I was a girl. I didn't need it. So, okay, I would go pick him up because he was younger than me. The woman that taught his Talmud Torah, Mrs. Nettie Greenspan, Ahalava Shalom, she said to me, come in, sit in my classroom. You're waiting for your brother. Sit down. So I sat down and I learned a little olive base, a little this, you know, a couple of things. And those days in the 60s, I think it was, I wore mini skirts. And she would see me on Shabbat carrying a pocketbook, wearing this skirt that when I would see her, I would try to pull it down and pull it down. Of course, it didn't go anywhere. And she would say, Shabbos, how are you? It's good to see you. She never criticized me. And that made me want to see her more and more. So when I was 18, I took a class in the Talmud Torah at night on learning how to read Hebrew. The following term, she uh, gave us a class on tefillah. So I said, oh, good, I'm going to learn how to pray. And I went to the uh, Talmud Torah class, all ready for her to start telling us things, and she hands me a sitter, all in Hebrew, no English. Now, yes, I did learn a little olive base, but I, I really got nervous. I thought she made a mistake. But she had us all stand there, about five of us, all of us not religious or, or learning to become religious. And she said, I'm going to teach you the prayer we say when we put the Torah away. And it's going to remind us of the olden days. And it's going to show how we're connected to the days of old. And we stood. And she explained word by word. And I remember going over the Hebrew because I was able to follow, you know, each sound. And I did it. I was able to say the prayer with her. And to this day, many, many years ago, more than half a century, every time I say that prayer, she's right beside me. Little things like that got me into it. You're painting a really nice picture of how you started to slowly take on things. And I also can understand that, that tension that you're talking about of you're growing and everybody else is staying the same. And I had the same thing with my family because you can't really meet in the middle on things. Everybody always thinks life is a negotiation and you got to make sure everybody gets a little something, but you can't go down to the level on what your non-religious family and friends are doing in terms of eating and Shabbos and stuff like that. So that's why I think they often feel a little bit shut out from your life because you can't meet them halfway. And so they feel that rejection and that comes out in a lot of different ways. But you also said something in your previous answer about uh, meeting your husband in high school who was religious. And I'm just wondering, how did somebody who was religious take an interest in you who's like early on in the journey? Like, how was that a good match at that time as opposed to him looking for someone who was maybe further along and already, you know, following Shabbos and everything? 
remember I, I met my first husband in, in public school. So he was in public school. He went to yeshiva up to eighth grade. I don't know. We just, both of us were working in the office at the time. We had, you know, they gave you extra activities to do to get credit. And we started talking. We ended up being on the same train station going home. And, and we just started talking. And uh, between one thing and another, we, after about a year, because we, we knew each other from high school, we started uh thinking that maybe there was something going on. But both our sets of parents, religious and non-religious, felt we were way too young. Mm-hmm. You know, not because of anything else, but we were very young. And we didn't get married till we were 23, so it was too long a courtship, but we still pursued it. <laughs> so I really can't answer for him, but it was a good way, because he taught me a lot. His mother, let her rest in peace, taught me so much also. She was a wonderful woman. His father, too, was a, loved to sing. And, and when he would make, his father would make kiddush, it was just so beautiful. I, I, everything made sense to me when I would hear it in music. So it worked out well at that point. And um, I remember sitting in his uh, mother's living room, and I was reading the Shulchan Aruch. It was the first time I ever saw it. And I read, and you shall talk about God with your children when you walk, when you sleep, when you go on the road. And I looked around and I said, well, when do you have time to live? If all you're doing is talking about it, it didn't make sense to me. And I look back now and I say, wow, that is life. That is life. And I didn't understand it at that point. And I hear clearly that you go through with the marriage. So where does your life now take shape? Where do you settle? Do you start a family? What are you doing career-wise? Like, Give us some insights into what your life is like as a young married couple. I started teaching in the New York City public school system. It was very difficult at first, only because I got married, started teaching, and I had to go to graduate school to finish my courses for my master's all at the same time. And unfortunately, within two years, uh, his mom passed away, and my parents were pretty sick. And, you know, the usual, we didn't have kids yet, but the sandwich generation, we have to deal with all that. There was a lot of stress but we were fortunate that we went to a conservative synagogue. He used to go to Orthodox, but I couldn't follow in an Orthodox shul. I didn't have the support system. So he, we would go together so he could show me what we were doing. At that time, uh, Orthodox rabbis would be a rabbi of a conservative shul. And I met Rabbi Daniel Kirschblum and his wife, Leona, let him rest in peace. And he nakarred me a lot. He got us involved in the Jewish community. He set up where young married couples would, uh, he takes like four couples together, and every month one of those couples would host a Shabbat dinner. And he would be there also, and he would teach us about how to, you know, do a Shabbat dinner. Although my husband of the time knew how to do that. Others didn't. And for me it was great to, to be taught and to, I was so honored the first time they walked in, wow, a rabbi is in my house. In my house, a rabbi? And then as time went on, he said to me, what, you don't read enough, you don't read Hebrew? Well, come to me Monday in my office and now I'm gonna sit with you. And he did, he went over the davening with me. And then I, I hooked up with a place in Borough Park and they gave me a tutor. And this wonderful woman, Yehudas Festinga, I went to her house once a week and we went over, I wanted to learn how to daven the Amida for Shabbos because that's, I got to shul at that time. And she went over it with me word by word. And every night I practiced the Amida at home so that it became second nature to me. And I was slowly getting into it. 
Now you just said also in that answer your husband at the time. So is that are you saying something changed in the relationship after you've been together for a while? Yes, after 20 years and we had two boys, thank God. It, it, we had to dissolve the marriage and he's now remarried and I'm remarried. We both moved on and thank God the boys are wonderful. They've grown up to be wonderful men. One of them is a rabbi. The other one is very well learned and uh, he's out in Jersey, the other one, and he's a lawyer. And I'm proud of both of them. And my ex and I get along very well now for the sake of the children and the grandchildren. And Hashem just put us in different places at this point. So even though the relationship ultimately didn't work out, the two boys you just talked about, you put them through the yeshiva system, like a different education than you had growing up. Oh, yes. And you know what? Hashem sends us children, too, to be our teachers. <laughs> when I was about, let's see, Benjamin's in his 40s. When he was younger, uh, you know, like a, a preschool child, that was where I was on the edge of, should I become totally kosher or could I still eat dairy out? Because I originally stopped eating all meat out and then slowly I would, I would eat dairy out. So if I went to someone's house and they served me dairy, it was fine. And then I started learning that really wasn't fun. And three things that Hashem sent right to me at around the same time. One was, there was a Rabbi Wickler, who lived, uh, Yosef Wickler, who lived across the street from me. And he's the editor, I think, of Kashrut Magazine. And he knew what I was going through, and he never questioned me. But one day I said to him, Rabbi, if I eat tray food in a tray restaurant, can I make a bracha? And he says, Linda, if you're asking me that question, you're ready to be totally kosher. Number two, we take my, my three-year-old son at that time, who's now in daycare, to a diner, which was not kosher. Mommy, I want to wash. <laughs> okay. So we go over to the sink, and he washes, and I'm looking around. Who sees me? You know, of course, Hashem sees me, but I'm wondering about all these people. He sits down, he makes the bracha. Now it's time to bench. So at his loudest voice that any three-year-old knows, he starts benching. Everyone in the diner stopped talking and looked at my son. And when he finished, they all clapped. And they <laughs> said, what a nice song. What does it mean? You know? <laughs> so my husband and I just quickly paid the bill and got out of there as fast as we could. And, that, and I realized, oh boy, I think Hashem's really talking to me through my son. One day in school, my principal gets on the loudspeaker and says he has to change lunch hours because we have too many more children. The population was growing. Okay, that means I can't go out to eat with the staff anymore because I taught kindergarten, two half-day kindergartens, which means none of my lunch hour, none of my lunch hour, no part of it, was with anyone else. It overlapped two different lunch hours. I could never go out. One person out of 100 people in the school did not have a lunch hour that was the same as anyone else. So that night I was sitting on my couch, I was so angry, I even went to my principal, how could you do this to me, you know? <laughs> I had a good relationship with him. And then it hit me, I was sitting on, on the couch in the living room and I said, you know, if Hashem came down in front of me physically and slapped me on the face, I, I, I don't know if I would hear him because I think he just did that to me. He could, you know, not, not in a mean way, but to say, hey, wake up. So between my son, Rabbi Wickler, and my principal, I said, that's it. I can't ignore this anymore. And I was able to make the leap. And Baruch Hashem, I did. 
And what was it like teaching in public school all those years? I'm thinking back to the answers you gave earlier in the interview about you weren't religious at that time, but you were having these Jewish experiences, but now you are religious, but you're in a secular setting. So are there any clashes there or what's it like being in that environment? There were, when I taught second grade um, at the beginning, in the curriculum, we were supposed to teach about different cultures, not religion, but cultures. So I figured, let me tell the children what I'm doing on Rosh Hashanah, you know, without mentioning religion, but showing them what we eat and why I'm not going to be in school, because they had... Public school was closed for Rosh Hashanah, but actually they were open for Sukkot and Simchas Torah. So I remember bringing in a piece of challah, and these Spanish children refused to eat the challah. They don't eat Jewish bread. And one little boy, his name was Angel, he said, you're Jewish? I go, yeah. He goes, I got to get out of here. Second grade. So I realized that life wasn't so easy for the Jews even here. Christmas time. You have to put on a show. You don't have a choice when you're assigned it. And they would put on things like nativity scenes and stuff. I couldn't do that. So I would try to find little things like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You know, something that I didn't feel was too religious. But I had my kids do a dreidel song. These Spanish kids would had boxes on them with arms cut out. And I wrote the, the letters of the dreidel. And they would spin and spin and fall. So, you know, this way they showed what we would do. When I had to leave early on Fridays, I didn't have to until I had children. And my principal, who was Jewish, was very upset about it. He goes, you never did it before. I says, but now, in the 45 minutes to an hour that I have to get home, I have to pick up my son from daycare, find parking there, then find parking by my house, and bring my children home to make Shabbos. I said, it's not the same. He goes, I don't understand the difference. And I realized I was not going to explain it to him. I just made up the time. I did an extra lunch duty or came in early and answered the phones for them. But it was, was difficult. It really was difficult doing that. Later on, when I became teacher trainer, I was in different schools. And some of the principals were very good about letting me leave early on Friday. And some of them just couldn't understand it. Well, what do you have to do? I mean, how do you explain that? Why do you have to leave early? Can't you have everything ready when you get home? Yeah, well, what about a shower? You know, what about picking up your kid? They just didn't understand. In all those years you were teaching, did you ever think about switching to teach in an Orthodox school where the, the rhythm of the year would be the same as how you were trying to live your life? I would have liked to. However, I was the main Parnassa bringer in. And the salary was decent. The benefits were de- decent. And there was a retirement package that I didn't want to give up. In a, in a way, it really helped me get my kids through yeshiva. It helped raise my kids the way they needed to be raised. I mean, my ex did help. I won't say he didn't. But we just needed more. And then you referenced getting remarried. So can you talk a little bit about the second individual who came into your life and what was his religious background and, and how you came together? We met in Boy Scouts. Both our kids were in Boy Scouts. Each boy has to learn about his own religion in Boy Scouts, whether they're a religious troop or not. So Aaron was asked to run the, the, this course called the Nir Tamit. And, and after the boys would finish all the requirements for the course, they would get an award, the Nir Tamit award. So Mike calls me up and he says, I need you to talk to this guy. He's also a teacher. He's running the course. Just since you're also the only other teacher in the group, could you please assist him if he needs help? That year, I was still married, and he called me up. 
I would just yes him and yes him because I had no idea what the class was about. But I helped him as much as I could. The following year, I was already separated and I think we were divorced. I'm not sure when the exact time. I think I had my getter ready. And we did the course again. And I started to learn things about him, that he was single and that so on and so forth. And as we did the course together, my kids liked him a lot because he was a scout leader and they knew him. It's like when Ben needed a new bike, he would call up Aaron, my husband, now my husband of now, and say, listen, um, I need a new bike. Or what high school should I go to? Because Aaron's also a teacher. To make a long story short, after five years, Aaron and I got married. And he comes from a religious family from Bensonhurst. Both his parents religious, were religious. Let them both rest in peace. And we're just so much more on the same wavelength. We learned together. He taught me so many things I don't know. And so, thank God, we're married 24 years now. That's beautiful. And I'm thinking now, how do you reflect back on some of those thoughts you had in kindergarten, second grade, what you wrote in your journal when you were... 15 as you had like in your mind this thought of becoming religious and how far you've come like how do you reflect back on the journey all these years later i thank hashem daily about two years ago we had a hanukkah get together and all our children aaron has children also from his first wife and my children were able to come and what are the chances that all the kids are available at the same time on the same day to come to mom's you know and they were here for hanukkah and I just sat on my chair and I quelled. And I said, thank you, Hashem. You know, on the Hirat's own prayer, after we light Shabbos candles, we say, you know, Hashem, please grant me the merit to raise children and grandchildren who follow in your ways. And when you can see that that happens, I cry. I cry because, thank God, I was able to connect that chain and bring it together. You know, they're all following in his ways. And they have children. And Baruch Hashem, God willing, they're going to have children. And I see how dedicated they are. And it just makes me feel that, that Hashem put me here for a purpose. And if I could just add one more thing about my mother. My mother was not religious, as I told you. And I didn't realize that she would ever be so proud of me. Because when she was in her 80s, she had to go into a nursing home at 85. Her mind was good. And she says to me, you know, I don't deserve a daughter like you. I go, what do you mean? She goes, because I wasn't there for you religious-wise. You know, I could have been a better mother. I said, Ma, we all need to improve. You did your best. You, you were good there. You were fine there. She goes, well, I'm so proud to have a grandson who's a rabbi, another grandson who's religious, and all those grand great-grandchildren, she said. And now that I'm in this nursing home, I can only eat kosher. And you know what happened to me on Shabbos? I go, what? She says, the nurse came in, a Jamaican nurse, and said, Esther, I'm taking you now to shul. My mother says, nah, I don't believe in shul. She says, Esther, I go to church on Sunday. You got to go to shul on Saturday. So she takes my mother to shul, and my mother loved it. She said, it reminded her when she went to Talmud Torah back in the day. She says, at least I'll go out the right way. And how true her words were. She went into a coma, Erev Rosh Hashanah. They wanted to pull the plug on her. And my mother lived through till Yom Kippur, and she couldn't sin. She was in a coma. I said the Shema with her right after Yom Kippur was over. 
I held her hand. She could not move. She, she, if she moved, I said it was a reflex. And I, we said the Shema. And as we got over Echad, the last word, her hand jumped with my hands in it. And I said, wow, she felt that. Her soul must have responded. And she passed away two days after Yom Kippur with a clean slate. I'm so glad I had the stamina with Hashem's help to keep at it, even though it was against what my mother believed in. I stood up for it, for Hashem, and eventually she came around. And that to me is like such a complete turnaround and a miracle that I was able to be part of. That story reminds me of something that uh, Rabbi Yudin in Fairlawn always says when you tell him that someone is not religious. He says, not religious, not yet religious. You never know. It can happen at any point in someone's life, and your story really illustrates that. And I think it's such a beautiful way to end the interview because I'm thinking about how your family maybe originally felt about your journey, but that really came full circle towards the end of your mother's life. So it's just such a beautiful story to share at the end. So Linda, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story today on Saturday to Shabbos. And thank you so much for giving me the honor to share my story. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.